You set it up, um, Arch, so why don't you do the intro? Great. Well, that really backfired. <laughs> Kia ora and welcome to 76 Small Rooms, a podcast about architecture from Aotearoa, New Zealand. Today is episode 47, the um, birthday celebrated by our absent co-host, Matt, recently. And I'm joined today by Tash and Jeremy, and we have a very special international guest as prefaced in the last uh, episode. We're joined today by Ty Farrow, uh, an architect out from Toronto, Toronto, who's freshly arrived in New Zealand for a series of talks put on by Woodworks. And we're interviewing here in uh, the Warren Amani Auckland studio. Welcome. Hi, thank you very much for joining us. Great to be on the podcast. Thank you, thank you. Uh, we look forward to the boost in our numbers that an international guest always gives us. I wonder, Ty, now I, I suppose having looked into your work and you're, you're going to give a talk tonight, a public event which is very well subscribed, uh, and I guess what, we're, what would be great to talk about here is a little bit of that, but the benefit of this is for those who might not be able to attend. Um, we always like talking to people who are looking at things from a different angle and I suppose from the little I've learned about you recently that's a very very strong theme about looking into architecture from other directions and other angles. Perhaps maybe you could just start by telling us just a little bit about yourself and your work uh, and maybe what's on your mind right now as you're about to kind of speak to teams and, and, and people in New Zealand. Well, I'm uh, based in Toronto. Uh, our, our practice, Faro Partners, um, works across Canada from coast to coast. Uh, we've got a dozen, a little more projects in Europe from sort of Dublin, Ireland, uh, moving through Europe through to Israel where we have a, a bunch of projects there and we've been working for uh, a number of years. The practice, uh, it his main focus is the relationship between what we build and how it can enhance human performance. And what do I mean by that is, uh, which I'll talk about this evening, is, is how can what we create um, um, accelerate optimal health. And optimal health for me is, is the metaphor of like a tabletop that's supported by four legs. And the tabletop on it is a vase, which is optimal health. And optimal health can only occur um, uh, because of what it's supported by. And so back to the analogy of the table and the four legs, one of the legs represents design's impact on ecological health. And I think as a profession, we have been reasonably good about understanding that. The second leg is design's impact on physical health. And that, I think, has been emerging a little more, and certainly we know it in, in the context of the suburbs and car-dominated societies. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you look at sort of through the, the mid-1900s, the whole rise of chronic diseases, um, uh, as a result of the way we <laughs> designed and created our, our places. So that's the second leg. The third leg is clearly around design's impact on societal health. And, and having seen not that long ago, really Black Lives Matters, if you look in, at the United States specifically, um, you know, there was a big effort on designing and separating and zoning and keeping, you know, mm -hmm. you there and, and me here. Gerrymandering. 
kind of an extreme example well, of that. And, and, you know, as a profession, we were very much involved with that. But um, uh, the fourth leg is really design's impact on mind health. And I'm using the word mind health very specifically instead of mental health. Because mind health, I'm using it through a view of an asset-based idea as opposed to mental health. While thankfully, a lot of our societies have become more open to um, um, uh, mental health and specifically coming through COVID. Um, but it is viewed more through a, um, sort of a medical deficit-based view and where I'm interested in it through a sort of a salutogenic what causes health view. But back to the tabletop, those four legs support optimal health. And if you remove one of the legs, the tabletop and the, the glass falls, you know, falls down and, and crashes. And so um, I think we need to begin to look at all of those pieces but um, really the intersection of neuroscience and architecture, which has resulted in the book, is something that um, uh, we're sort of laser focused on. Um, as a way of background, I did my undergrad in, in architecture at the University of Toronto. I then went on and did a uh, Master of Architecture and Urban Design at Harvard at the GSD. And then just before the pandemic, while running um, our practice. Uh, leading up to that, I was, you know, beginning to, I mean, we all in our gut understand what this environment does, either consciously or pre-consciously or subconsciously mm. when we walk through this threshold. Some places we want to sit and have conversations and chat and enjoy each other. Other places we want to get out really quickly. And, and we know that in our gut. But everybody says, well, that's your gut, that's not science, it doesn't mean anything. So what's the evidence to support that? I came across a couple of things. There's the Academy of Neuroscience for Architecture at the Salk Institute, and then a couple of books that were really exciting. And then I found that there was this new program that started at the University of Venice. It was just in the first year when I discovered it. And it's a Master of Neuroscience Applied to Architecture and Design. So I met, went to meet the director of it. He was, you know, really, it was very, very early times. But you could, um, I could do it as a fly-in student. Mm. And so between the projects in, in Europe and Israel, I could, you know, go to those projects and have a, a week, a month in, in Venice, which was fun. And being, you know, a small class of, at that time, probably only a dozen with the leading sort of neuro neuroscientists, cognitive science, sociologists, psychologists, and thinking of, you know, and all the froth that you have in your day job to be able to step out and just get immersed in these things, you know, a lot of with them because you, you start with the, the science of the mind, the brain and how it works and then move into the cognitive side cognitive sciences, which is really the science of, of the mind and, and the perceptual system, it was amazing uh, because it was a language that we're not taught. Mm -hmm. um, but everything comes in through here and we make sense of it. Um, and to be able to be immersed in that became uh, amazing. And suddenly what it did is a lot of that stuff that we all know intuitively suddenly it became very evident that in fact this stuff is rooted deeply in, in science and, and perception. And then I began to be able to connect the dots on 
how can we use the spaces we create as an accelerant for health? How can we fundamentally, which I believe that we need to imagine placemaking in a different way, fundamentally placemaking as um, a, a way to create accelerants that are health systems. And those health systems, um, again, are, are um, accelerants for physiological health, importantly psychological health, but also our, our biological health. And so that really is um, uh, what we're focused on and, and really what has become the, the basis of, of the the book and that journey like you as an author. I mean, at 80,000 words, 300 pages, there's probably about 400 diagrams or uh, it was a little uh, bigger than I thought when I thought I'd bite it off, but uh, it's been a fantastic journey really to try and make sense of, of what we do with, uh, with uh, hopefully a little more rigor in, in going through the journey. And Yep, that's it. That's a wrap. Um, Ty, and you know, we're sitting here in front of a copy of a book, which of course our listeners can't um, can't see. A book called Constructing Health, uh, which you've just described. Fantastic looking tome. When's this out? You can, if you go to University of Toronto Press and and search um, Ty Farrow on Constructing Health, you can pre-order it now. Um, it'll be out in a couple months' time, but it's in the in the the pre-purchase stage, great, which just happened, I think, last Friday. So it's, uh, <laughs> as you would know, it seems like a, a big milestone, but there seems to be st still a few, a few things that need to be done along the way, which uh, I'm, I'm excited to uh, move through. Well, we look forward to getting our hands on a copy and, and having a look at this preview copy here. You mentioned a couple of words and terms um, as you were talking now, which might be good to just unpick a little more. Um, Phenomenology is one, and um, you know most of us have come through an education where we would have read people like Pelasma, but you're going in a different direction. And the other one is um, well, he's certainly he's certainly one of the the you know the the uh, the gurus I think of the the neuroscience and the and is it worth just talking briefly about what that kind of term means? The other one sure. I'd ask about is salutogenesis and that idea that it's not the origins of disease, it's the origins of health, if I think I've understood that correctly. So phenomenology, some, I think we hear about it in architecture. Sometimes it becomes, uh, it, it can be a bit complicated depending on how it's being used. Um, in the context that, that I'm using it is that uh, the brain, for example, we think is housed in the skull, and so it's all up there. But in fact, the brain is a biological organ, and the mind is, it's a simplification, but it's the operating system. And the mind is uh, what is known as being embodied, meaning that it, um, there's, there's interceptive, proprioceptive, and extraceptive perceptions of the mind. What does that mean? Simply that the mind you know, when your stomach has a reaction, it's telling your, your mind something's happening. And we can dive a little further into it. There's the proprioception, which is um, the perception along the surface of your body, but also kinetics and, and the movements. And the extraceptive is really your perception in space, so you, you have a sense of what is, is behind you. 
But the important thing is that we are a creature that moves and we perceive by moving through space. That's how we connect the dots. And so um, there's a thing called uh, isovert, which is basically a, a different way to map compared to sort of the rationalist, René Descartes, um, um, uh, I forgot the term of it, where we measure every point in space. So what does that mean? It's that if we think of a house, what's a house? Well, it's a, it's a living room this big and a bedroom this big and, 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 and other things. But a home is something different. One is sort of a, the words Cartesian, mapping, and, and we're very good at Cartesians, mm. you know, points in space. But when we come back to phenomenology, um, it is our moving through something. We don't, we don't perceive everything as a point in space. We experience, and that experience has physiological and psychological reactions that your, your body takes on, which tells you messages. Mm -hmm. And so the important thing is that um, architecture isn't a Cartesian thing that is abstract out there. It is something that we are embodied, we move through, and there is the phenomena from our senses um, um, that translate back to us and, and tell very important stories about that. And so it's really, some would argue, uh, um, that we need, you know, we're going back into that. I think it's a forward-looking thing because it's tying straight from what we create to how it enhances human performance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The places we live, the places we work, the places we learn, uh, the places we heal, and the places we, we, we play. With all of the complexity of the issues that we have out around us today, we need to use architecture as a vehicle to help bring people together, to share, have conversations like this, as opposed to places that we want to run away from. The second point of it is around salutogenesis. So, Pathogens, we know that very well. The roots of the word come from patho and genesis, which is effectively the origins of disease. Mm -hmm. A guy called Antonovsky in the 1970s, an American-Israeli um, scientist uh, for a variety of things, coined this word on salutogenesis, which is the origins of health. Well, that's something very different in the sense that... Um, we have a very pathogenic view of the world in a lot of ways, and, and it's a bit of a simplification, but you know, Western evidence-based medicine is really firmly rooted in, in a pathogenic view. Mm -hmm. And how do I mean that, or what do I mean? Well, there is 8,000 known causes or symptoms of disease that have been discovered. Seems like a I'm not sure if that's a lot or, or not, but it seems like a reasonably big number. However, there's only 80 known symptoms or causes of health. We find what we look for. Why are we looking for that? I mean, the whole, I was giving a speech a while ago in, in Washington with the Surgeon General of the United States, and he was talking, we were on a panel together, and he was talking about all of these preventative health methods that he was putting in place. I said, isn't that fundamentally wrong? And he said, you know, what do you mean by that? I said, you know, preventative health, I mean, as a messaging, as, as how do we stop bad things from happening? I mean, isn't that backward looking in the sense of how do we 
be and are accelerants for good things to uh, happen. And uh, interestingly, what he then shifted onto, and I'll take it, I'm taking it as a credit to me, which I know it wasn't, but that he put in this, this whole walking program, so getting kids out to walk, to school, to ambulate, to have the social interaction, what it does to the urban fabric, you know, the scale of the, the streets and, and the neighborhood that we've just toured around in this neighborhood, you know, the porousness about, um, of, of creating communities. That creates health on a variety of levels, back to what we were talking earlier, it's ecological health here in, in, with the rain gardens. The vegetation that's popping up has a salutogenic biophilia overlay. The, the ambulating, you want to ambulate uh. because it's beautiful. The paths are curious. They're not just straight. You see, you see something that you come to. You then see the, the direction further on. Um, and for mind health and societal health, they tie together. So salutogenesis as a concept, for me, is a fundamental idea of how can we cause health? How can we construct health coming back to the... That is the prime focus um, on, on what we do in our practice, and I think it has to be the fundamental uh, piece of, of architecture. And I would just add that that ties back to another concept around planetary health, which I think is very salutogenic in the sense that planetary health, uh, the Lancet Journal and the Rockefeller Foundation came together to develop this, this term, but it looks like a lot of older ideas of what health and well-being is. Mm. If you look at 5,000 years of, of human health and well-being, or we're talking um, uh, a bit of um, um, Maury concepts here that have all these intersecting circles of health, they're economic, uh -huh. they're societal, ecological, they, they all tie together. That's this definition of planetary health. And, and I think it's a very strong concept as it, as it ties back to the concepts of salutogenesis and, and where I think we should be aiming. These concepts are so, oh sorry to ask you, they're so holistic and they're so appealing. And as I think about them, I also think about how um, dumb we've been in terms of creating urban environments in large part um, over the past 50 years or so, partly because of capitalism, but partly because of other factors. But I wondered if you felt that the climate crisis and other factors are now creating a movement towards a situation where wellness can be placed at the heart of design projects. Are you optimistic about that? Uh, well, I'm, I'm optimistic by nature, and I think that's the only way that we can move forward. And uh, maybe I should turn that around. I'm hopeful, because there's a big difference between hope and optimism. Mm. Optimism, I can, I can uh, believe that I can play in the NBA as a basketball player, but there, there isn't a path forward. It's not real, and, and to deal with the barriers <laughs> might not work out particularly well. Hope is a different concept because hope um, uh, ties to um, uh, a continuous move forward. You, you, can, you, can, you can map it out. I think what we need to do is go back and understand again what health is. And so if you look at 5,000 years of human history, which we get into, into a bit in the book and, and in, the, in the talk today, if you look at um, um, you know, 3000 BC, traditional um, um, Chinese medicine, if you go through Aristotle's uh, Amodia, uh, um, the concept and 
Hippocrates is the father of um, you know medicine. If you go all the way through up to about you know 1850s or so, all of these things we had a holistic view of what health and well-being is. Mm -hmm. Then this Fetzner report that came in that said if it wasn't written primarily for the primary medical schools and Yale and Harvard and all the rest, if it wasn't evidence-based medicine, it was witchcraft. And so we threw out effectively 5,000 mm. years of what these inter interlocking circles were, and we became very reductivist in our view. And arguably, that period, we've been re reductivist in a variety of things. Health is health care and pathogenic views. Um, we look at economic systems or cultural systems or those things, and they have a very narrow view of, of eudaimonia, back to the idea of human flourishing, mm. which we need to go back to, um, and Aristotle's, um, because it's a holistic view that is complex and, and, and tied together. And um, so I'm, uh, I believe that we are aiming in that direction, and there's a variety of, of indicators. But I would put a real charge on with our profession that our profession is very focused on the ecological piece of the puzzle. And I think we're very good at doing that. It is extremely important, and it is one of the four legs that supports the table. But I'm not so sure we have focused as much on the other three legs. And I think for a profession to enhance our relevance, I think we need to move back to the holistic that begins to, 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 to embrace that. Now that's a bit of a simplification, because a lot of people are, are, are at, at different levels. But um, you will see buildings that maybe from an ecological standpoint are, are very high up on the rating system, but they're not beloved. Mm. It sounds like in a funny way, um, you're suggesting that it's also, this approach is also an opportunity for architecture to take back its leading role. I was reading an article in Architectural Record um, in the weekend that was lamenting how architecture has just become another just another of many service professions that deliver buildings and in your view does it allow architecture to kind of take the lead in shaping these places that enhance wellness as well as provide beautiful environments for people? It is uh, exactly that point because we are trained to see ways of getting around something that might not be obvious to a number of other people, mm -hmm. complex problems that you need to imagine a different way around it than, than um, what currently is. And that's how we're, we're, we're trained. I mean, I had a, a discussion with a, a group um, uh, at lunchtime today, and they were talking about societal and health within New Zealand and, and a variety of the problems, and they were lamenting that within their specific professions, as in ours, and a lot of things back to the, that hundred year period where we're very narrow focused, mm. is we become very, very specialized and we only deal within a, in a very narrow realm. Um, and that's not who we are, I think, as, as, as a profession. Mm. 
in the sense that all of these factors have to be balanced together to create something that helps advance something and makes it better, however you define that, from where it was before. And so being able to step in the frothy area of where all of this stuff is, is sometimes uncomfortable, but um, it's somewhere that is badly needed mm -hmm. and one that we should, I believe, embrace wholeheartedly. I'm really fascinated um, by this because it seems to touch on so many different issues. Firstly, as you rightly point out, you know, our whole approach to everything in Western life at least is about risk mitigation, right? And this is really looking at a, an almost glass half full approach to well, how can we make things better, which I think architects are really well placed to do. But it also starts to talk about the feeling of place, our emotional reaction, how we physically feel, what makes us um, enjoy a place. And I think that perhaps that's something we've also lost a sense of in architecture, maybe because of the um, privileging of, of the architectural photograph, the, the, the visual, the image, um, but perhaps also because of that risk mitigation element. I'm really curious to understand um, what you found, um, or how you found the course in neurosciences. Did you find that it uh, essentially um, gave confidence to a lot of uh, your gut feeling approaches about architecture, or did it give you also new tools to be able to describe or explain the experiential? It uh, both. Mm. It, what it did is began to make sense, which is in fact what the book is about, is trying to make sense of what I do and what we do. And it begins to answer the, the questions that are the gut reaction that you knew that environments could be, different environments could have extraordinary outcomes on its ability to bring people together to, to create the conditions where people can, can thrive in a whole variety of different areas. As well as it gave me more tools to be able to go and have conversations with my, my clients about um, um, what space can do to help them. And so we uh, primarily work with value-based companies. And so what does that mean? That could be in sort of the health and the knowledge zones that are you know, uh, reasonably high performance, but value-based organizations. And uh, we regularly work very closely with either the CEO or the, um, the chair of the board that they have a strategic mission for the organization that they need to advance forward. And a mandate to and drive a, it. And a mandate yeah. to drive it. But the physical space, the architecture is a risk, mm. back to your idea, or it's perceived as a risk or it can be a risk. And so what we get involved with and spend a lot of time with them is understanding what is that strategic operational mission and how can we translate it to strategic architecture that again is an accelerant for what they can do to advance their operation, their values, their perception, on and on and on. And a variety of those things we say, okay, those are soft things, aren't they? Or intangible things, but in fact, these guys know that they're tangible things that have significant um, 
um, uh, outcomes to advance what and who they are. And so if you can have conversations with those types of, of uh, people and get in deep to understand what that, that is and then begin to, to be an, an, an interpreter, really, um, that becomes very important. I mean, you know, the risk side um, uh, is a bit of like the pathogenic side of it. I mean, the risk, we, we know risks have to, are out there and we have to, to manage them. But it's, it's really the stopping, you know, the bad things from happening. How do you create the good things, which is creating the value? And, and we're, we're laser focused on that in the discussions on how can the space begin to do that to advance their missions? And I think when you get into the conversations, again, depending on who those conversations are, they understand it, but we need, we need to, to start there we can't just do no harm. That's not good enough. I don't believe it's good enough, and, and I'm sure we all in this room and people watching. But um, we also need a vocabulary that's accessible, um, and the book has been trying to do that. But I, I'd just like to step back a little bit, back to that sort of rational view and risk meditation that we see in so much um, around us, and just beginning to understand like feelings and emotions and moods those are all sort of soft things aren't they but you know when we get a little further back into it back to René Descartes and you know you've got the rational mind and and the emotional mind well the mind doesn't work like that and that's been proven you know what are emotions and what are feelings well, I mean we were never taught that in school let alone how the mind works well emotions are a translation of a physiological reaction and then the feelings is a chosen response to that. What do I mean by that? So say we suddenly hear a, a loud bang, you know, from behind us that, that, that we don't see. What happens? Well, your heart starts racing. You know, your, your breathing, you start to perspire. It goes into a whole variety of different physiological actions. What are those things doing? What they're doing is your body is telling your mind, back to the embodied concept, is that there's something that's happened that you're gonna need to do something about. Okay, so that's told me, you know, we're, we're like this, and so I've heard that sound, and I turn around, and what do I see? Well, say two scenarios. One is a guy with a knife, and so there's a feeling that's choosing. So there's excitement, but fear is mixed together. But what do I do if I turn around and it's one of our friends and, you know, they have a funny costume, you know, then it is, is surprise or excitement with joy overlaid to it. And then what the feelings begins to do is tell my body, that's okay, that's a good thing. I don't have to run. I have to jump up and hug somebody and celebrate and have fun. But your body and your mind is beginning to, to tell you and as I walk through the threshold of this door, my physiological reaction tells me if I want to stay here, if I want to stay in chat and interact or mm. get the hell out or... Um, and so that separation of the rational and the emotion, it's not true and, and moods as a side note or things that linger for, for much longer. But we need to harness those things to create the places and the points we want to be 
very intentionally to advance the mission of something. And a simple example would be, you know, words are very important and, if, I don't know, think of an education organization or, you know, it could be a, a work environment that, you know, we're very collaborative and that's the, the main thing we're about. But you come into the space and it's the last place you want to spend time uh, together. So there's a, there's a mismatch of strategic operational directions and words and reactions. And I think if you look at a lot of either maybe commercial spaces, I was just touring Google's spaces headquarters in Europe last week in Dublin. It's very curious to see how spaces communicate and reinforce a mes message or not. And that's not a critique of them, but it's their very intentional of trying to connect their values to, to place uh, or really, yeah, values of an organization. But um, their messages that sometimes do or don't um, tie together. And we as a profession, I think, need to understand it because then we can have conversations with our clients. And I have these conversations with our clients and all of them get it. I mean, it's not a hard conversation, period. So, With the way that you, um, I wonder, to come back to the design moves and the way you deploy design to promote and accelerate health, um, do you find yourself up against, um, you know, you really have to twist and turn around paradigms that might already be in place. So a client might be like, well, I'm looking for this kind of target occupancy and these are the kind of collaboration spaces we want. And those sorts of, that sort of dogma, is much of your work, you know, trying to pull back from that, unpack that and come at it from this phenomenological point of view and go, well, if this space is about creativity, then these are some things we can test in toolbox that will promote creativity. And they might be very different to what you think. You know, creativity is not a slide and a pool table and free lunches. It's, it's whatever. Is that something that's part of your kind of briefing and client journey? Yeah, so our process, um, I'm sure a variety of people do it in, in different ways, but it's very important to us. So we sort of frame it around this idea of salute systemic. Um, and what does that mean? Back to saluto or salutogenics, something that causes health. So design that causes health. But the systemic, saluto systemic, a healthy process, design process, is equally important. And what that means is that uh, we never go in with a design, ever. Mm -hmm. We start off what's called a common ground session. What that starts off is that, okay, why are we doing this? And one might think that's, you know, kind of a simple design. You're the client saying, well, we need this much square footage for this many places and that many collaborative spaces and creative spaces, as you've mentioned. We say, okay, what else? Well, it's got to be on budget. It's got to be on time. Our clients are primarily uh, public-based, and so they don't have a lot of money to throw at it. Okay, so we need to meet the program. We need to meet the, the, the you know, the time and the, and the cost and the schedule. Okay, what else? Well, it's got to be collaborative. Okay, mm -hmm. well, what does collaborative mean to you and what does it look like? Words are important again. And so we begin to dive in further and further and what would make a really successful project? What would it look like? What would it feel like? So we dive into that and we create something that's, you know, sort of like a balanced scorecard. That's, that's an important tool because it's a dashboard like on your car. Like I don't understand everything that's happening under it under the hood, but I know when a light goes on or these things. So it's very easy. And if you change your mind and want to go in a different direction, you can do that. But at least it's intentional. 
The next thing we, we go into is a critical eye, which we begin to put up, pair photos of different spaces. Let's say if it was for collaborative space and we show two pictures together. These pictures are not to show, well, I think this is the greatest collaborative space and I can make sure you agree with it at a certain point in time. That's not what it's about. It's that we begin to show pictures and what you think of as a creative space or what I think of from, if we go back to how the mind works and perception and, and human emotions, is that there are inputs that come in through our senses from the outside and there's outputs, which are predictions of what we should do. Mm -hmm. And the outputs are colored by things we've experienced in the past and we've done and things we've learned, which are, are cultural or, or societal overlay. So when you mentioned sort of collaborative, what that looks like to you or what it looks like to me can be very different. Mm -hmm. And so what's a simple example of that? So think of a Georgian building with a, you know, a, say it's a white pediment with columns. What does that communicate to us in sort of a Western-based society? Well, it might be order and... and um, Appearing uh, in court. Yeah, it, it Hypothetically, may... Hypothetically, just may, for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> not you specifically. <laughs> but it, it might be uh, not just order um, from a, like a law standpoint, but it could be sort of civility, mm. for example. Um, but if you take that and move it to the, the deep south in the United States, or we were doing work in South Africa, it has a very, very different perception. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it is clearly about abuse and oppression because of the institutions that it... That sort it, of imperialism, and it has these, these hierarchies imbued in it. Yep. But unless we get deep into it and we begin to look at images mm -hmm. and we begin to say, what does that say to you? What does it communicate? And what it does is a couple things is that we learn a lot, but equally what it does is it helps our clients, which often aren't immersed in, in ideas about design, and it begins to give them tools to mm -hmm. become more critical of what comes forward, and the more critical and knowledgeable they are, they're beginning to make decisions that are, are more deeply rooted. And then the next thing that is important, back to a slew of systemic process, is we have a wide range of, of voices around the table. We're doing, um, uh, for me, a very exciting institute in Israel. And the Israelis would tell you that if you pull together 20 people, you know, there'll be 22 different, uh, this is them telling me mm, opinions mm. around the table, a lot of A-type, amazing, amazing people. But the group can self-edit because if you firmly believe this is the way to do it, and then you guys say, well, I'm not so sure about it. But as I say, we come in with a big model. We come in at that stage with blocks of space. We don't come in with a design. We start off and say, where should the front door be? How should they be arranged? And so you say, well, I think it should be like, we should arrange them like this. So we arrange it like that. And you say, well, I don't think it should be. And so we arrange that and we, you know, photograph it or make a model of it. Mm -hmm. And then every idea or variation that is thought of it, we go back, drop the schemes, you know, move them, manipulate them and adjust them. So there's some co coherency to it. And then we come back with five, six, seven schemes. We say, okay, better or worse, better or worse. And so we edit them down, edit them down, some fall off, some mm -hmm. come combined together. 
go away, draw them up, come back again, do it, do it, do it. What happens is, is you get very, um, um, you don't get fragile decisions. Meaning that, you know, you come in with a design, you then defend it, and then you get to the board or the leadership and, and you say, well, why didn't we do it this way? And everybody says, well, I, I mean, I, well, we should. Yeah. It's a very participatory um, process as well. So you're, you know, you're sort of conducting it as architect, but you're bringing along all of those people as participants in the decision making. So that when it does get to those, you know, those gates where, why didn't this happen or why are we here? You've, you've presumably built like a bunch of advocates. Well, and you have, you have to have the decision makers from all levels on it. And I think for me, what's fascinating is by the time we've never gone backwards, we never go backwards. What happens is by the time you get to the end, somebody says, well, you know, you, maybe you weren't involved and you say, well, um, you know, architect, why didn't you do that? The other people pop up and you say, well, mm. we didn't do that. I don't have to explain it. You say, we didn't mm. do it because we went through that and it doesn't work because X, Y, or Z. And then you pop in and say the same thing. So I'm not defending. Mm. It's that they own it now and it's, it's, it takes on a life of itself. And that's the key piece. Of the and Ty, when you're and doing it raises expectations. This phase that you're talking about and you're pushing glasses around on the table, are you still in plan? No, we always work in three-dimensional models. So you are going into, we into never, you're talking spatially, you're starting to talk about proportion and size and it's sequence? really, really important because we always use uh, large physical models. They can be simple, what we call foam core, yep. stuck on top. They're always stacked model, they're always three-dimensional, even from the, the, the very get-go. Um, and. And that's very important. People say, well, why don't you have the 3D stuff and all that stuff? We have all of that stuff. That needs somebody to translate if you wanted to change something. Mm -hmm. The physical models, mm -hmm. we have knives, we have you know, a lot of colored paper, we cut them apart, and, it, and the client's interesting say, oh, you can't do that. And it's, well, it's not precious. If mm. you think it should be like this, let's break it apart and change it to see. And that, that it's not precious is, is very, very important. And it comes back to a cognitive thing because if you go into a meeting with a PowerPoint or similar and you shine it up on the wall, what happens is we're trained that our job is to criticize that. The other thing that's very, very important is we know that architecture is a specific language. We're taught that language. Mm. Most people don't know it. Mm. So I can put, you can put up a plan, I can read it instantly and give you feedback. If you put up a sheet of music or German, maybe a financial spreadsheet, I can't read it. And so I start to figure out way that the critique is fragile and I don't begin to understand it until I can begin to, to understand it three-dimensionally. And people intuitively know stuff that's three-dimensional. And when they come in with a big physical model, what do they say? And no one wants to admit, I can't read a plan. They're well, more likely to sit there no, passively. Well, they do, yeah. and, and that's problematic until yeah. you get to the end. Models, though, everybody walks in and they say, this is Lego, are we playing with Lego? Yeah. And so what does that do is suddenly we're playing. Like mm. this is mm. this is going to be fun mm. instead of you trying to convince me yep. that this is. And so the whole cognitive, the table becomes set and the energy changes and the enthusiasm and and the fun around it, the people really enjoy it and want to linger doing it because the process, the way it's set, changes, and that changes the outcome, and then it begins to raise expectations, 
still has to be on time, still has to be on budget, mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. has to be the rest. But why can't we? Yeah. And people say, well, sure we can. Let's try, let's try it. Let's look at it. So I think it's a really, the, the, the process is, is, is very important and back to the idea that we as architects need to understand that the language we use in the sense of drawings and other things, a lot of people don't understand. And the language of uh -huh, architecture, uh -huh. a lot of people don't understand. And you get these fragile, um, fragile decisions until they get to the end and they realize this isn't right and then, you know... <laughs> I, I love the way that the, the benefits, the processes of accelerating good outcomes isn't something that happens once the building is done. You're bringing it all the way back to the design process in a really participatory way with that client from day one. You're kind of accelerating enthusiasm and accelerating creativity and accelerating collaboration and buy-in, like way before you draw well, a hard and line. Buy-in, that word... <coughs> believe in that's the shift because I think traditionally we are taught that we design this like in school what do we mm, do mm. we do a design then I pin it up and mm. I defend it mm. this process doesn't do that and what happens is in the process we're learned in school I need to get buy-in from my professors this process does the opposite that it's not about buy-in back to the end that somebody else is defending it's believing okay. that they fundamentally believe by the time you get there that this is the best way forward uh, because they've gone through it and there it's embodied in them as an idea and that shift again is fundamentally important mm -hmm. because it allows you to raise expectations and in fact when you get to the the end where somebody says, well, no, we need to change this or we need to cut it, everybody jumps in and says, we can't do that because, 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 because. And um, I think it's firmly rooted in the, in the way we interact and we conceive the process. And it seems to me to be a process that is all about relationships, both the relationships around the table, but then also architecturally the relationship between spaces and elements within the building. It, it, it is, and, and, and this idea that, um, you know, as an architect, how can you go in and not go in with a design and allow people to say this is the direction to go? Doesn't that, we're going to get a crazy scheme out of it if we listen to everybody, you know, this is a disaster. We should be going in. And I've sat with joint venture architects that are saying this, and I say, rubbish. I mean, I think we have a fear that if we don't do it, it's going to be something that's awful. And in fact, arguably, I believe that by doing this, we get to a much higher level than the usual defending. And because we're open, and I want to know every variation of how something can be designed, the worst way to what we perceive as being the best way, because then I can begin to understand if my belief is misguided because I didn't see it or I hadn't seen it. By doing this, it allows you to discover things that you didn't think of. And then, you know, what you do is, is, you know, my job is to help absorb the best ideas and allow them to flower. And there are these ideas, as we all know, that if you set the table, they come out of left field that none of us had imagined. And somebody says, well, why couldn't we do that? I've had, I don't know how many projects where that's happened, and it's just unlocked everything to an extraordinary way that we would have never imagined, never, never, never before. 
And so it, it gets back to, I think, another idea, back to Slutogenesis, is this idea of abundance. And there's so much scarcity that we see and so much process of scarcity that we see. And a lot of the systems that we've talked about in the past that have got us to where we are now that are reductivist and, you know, I have to guard my ideas and all the rest. I want to harvest all of them and be open and bring them in and, and to use them to, to, to solve or at least begin to address a lot of the complexities that we have and we read and we see on the front of the newspaper. The only way we can solve them is having abundance mindset um, um, uh, to use these ideas to propel us forward. Ty, we barely touched the surface of how much we could talk about, about your, um, about your process. It is so much more than the buildings and the outcomes. This has been just a fantastic conversation. Thank you for joining us. I've got one question I want to ask you. What is a place or a building not designed by you that best exemplifies these principles that you're, not, that you're now practicing? So we think of space, the analogy is like spices, like environmental enrichment or the elements of enriched environments are like spices. They're not prescriptive, there's qualities because of cultural differences and all the best. What do I mean by that? Think of cinnamon. So on sort of a Western perspective, I think of Christmas and a spice goose or spice wine or all the rest. But if you're in India with an Indian biryani, the cultural and the learned, the flavor is the same. And so that flavor of that sort of woody, maybe slightly sweet, you know, is on the positive side of, of sort of the emotion or the, the taste reactions. So we look at space on a variety of things. So there's gener generosity, variety and vitality, sense of occurrence. They range through to sort of the, the sort of the, the excited parts of things, the, the stillness, so, uh, silence. Those qualities are very important and obviously they can be infused in a variety of different environments. Just walking around with your team in the neighborhood that you've designed here um, had a lot of those qualities and characteristics. And what do I mean by those? Variety and vitality, that sense of occurrence, that curiosity of, you know, those these back lanes that come through here, they're very it's interesting. Leon Korea kind of they are very much unfolding. They are unfolding, which means I really want to keep going to see what's around the corner. Your mind, if it's a straight line, you sum it up. Mm -hmm. A curve, it leads you around mm -hmm. because of the curiosity. You come to like a monument or an occurrence and you want to go to the next and the rest. That sort of, that, that texture, the rain gardens are amazing. The, the, the shape and the variety of the buildings, uh, the mix of uses that are happening, these lanes that you, you, um, uh, you go under a building um, it's really sort of rich. And so if I go back to, back to the food analogy, which I use often, um, is that that is a meal. You can imagine that as a meal that you just want to keep um, enjoying and, and, and another, another mouthful. Mm -hmm. So those are the places that have those characters and qualities. And that's what the book talks about very much. Is they're not prescriptive, but if we can look at the... In a, in a simpler way, which is a longer discussion, is the way we form relationships person to person that are meaningful, that have variety, you know, a sense of co coherence. The way our mind shapes these relationships, curiously, are the same ways that we shape person to place relationships. And so I'll leave you with that thought that think of the buildings that you are in, 
or the streets you walk up, describe them as a personal relationship. So think of the mentors that have given you more generosity, big word, generosity and dignity are big drivers for me in architecture. That mentor that just did things for you. They, they didn't ask, but they did them. Think of a street that's like that, mm. you know, that has a bench or a tree canopy or something when it's, it's raining out, a place to sit, the smell of the bread, all the things for your senses, phenomenology back, back. Or things that aren't generous, like people we know or, or others, and tie that into a street. The street has a sidewalk that's that wide. There's six lanes of traffic. Mm. There's no storefronts. There's no canopy. You want to get out, out of there quickly. So I'll leave that is that we need to start describing our spaces as individuals and personal relationships. Because I think once we do that, that's how our brain begins to work. Um, I think some places we're in that are abusive. Mm. We talk about authenticity. There's a lot of people that aren't <laughs> authentic and there's a lot of spaces that aren't. And I think that's some of the things we've tried to lay out in the, in the book. I, if anybody is interested in deepening their knowledge on this, again, University of Toronto Press, Constructing Health, How the Built Environment Enhances Your, your Mind's Health, uh, it's out for pre-order. Or please go to our website or our LinkedIn account or, or Instagram. We're trying to share a lot of information to disseminate and be generous. <laughs> Ty Ferris, thank you so much. Um, as I said, it's just we're just kind of barely scraping the surface of what we could talk about. Um, a great reminder, of course, for our listeners how much more exciting it is to have a guest than just us rabbiting on between ourselves. Um, or as a visitor <laughs> to come and enjoy. <laughs> and and uh, thank you so much for your time, Ty. We'll let you get some air before your talk um, tonight. Um, people are in for a really fantastic talk. Uh, the episode will be up soon. Thank you also to Woodworks for arranging Ty's visit and also allowing us to talk to you for the pod. Enjoy your time in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And your office much. also as a, as a sponsor for this event that I'm extremely very thankful in our, in our time together. We're very, very happy to host you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ty. Thank you.